Good evening. Welcome to Armageddon and Beyond. Tonight's continuation on the Antichrist reminds me of what Christian theologian Gary DeMar has, has said about our point of view. He says, number one, uh, the scriptures that talk about Antichrist don't support the claim, our claim, that he is an individual. And second, he claims that all this talk about an Antichrist is a recent invention. Perhaps he thinks it was invented by Tim LaHaye or some other person, but um, in fact, as you go back into church history, you find in the very early part of the church, they taught about this individual Antichrist. And by the second century, the church had a well-developed doctrine about the Antichrist. So this claim that he is a, an invention, that he's relatively recent in our imagination is not true. This is something that the church has believed since its inception. So let's dig into the scriptures and see what is said about this individual. The name Antichrist appears several times, only in the New Testament, and always used by the Apostle John. The word, up, the word is made up of two parts. Anti, which can either mean instead of or against, and of course the word Christ. So it can mean instead of Christ or against Christ. I think this latter meaning is primary, and you see that in 1 John chapter 2, where he writes, Dear children, I love that, that appeal to Christians. His affection is evident. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. So he says to them, you know, he's the Apostle John who sat at the feet of Jesus. And he says, you know, to his disciples, to his readers, that the Antichrist, singular, is coming. Future. Well, John tells us there are many, many antichrists, that's true, and that there is one ultimate antichrist, also true. He will be a man, but he will be empowered by the arch enemy of God, Satan himself. Not only does antichrist refer to one who is against Christ, but it can also and also does mean one who is instead of Christ. That is, he is someone who will try to take the place of Christ. This is a part of the meaning of Antichrist. Just as Satan has always wanted to take the place of God, so this individual, this man, will want to take the place of the God-man, Jesus himself. He will want to be like Christ. In both Old and New Testaments, a picture is drawn of a man who will be evil incarnate. He will appear at first to be the savior of the world, but ultimately he will be its downfall. He will appear as a man of peace. 
He will bring the worst war mankind has ever experienced. His name is revealed to us as Antichrist. He has several other names. These all refer to the same individual. Listen to these names. Daniel calls him the little horn in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he is the king of fierce countenance. In Daniel 9.26, as we have seen, he is the prince that shall come, again future. And he is the willful king in Daniel 11. The Antichrist will speak horrible blasphemies against the God of the Bible. Other names for this individual seen in the New Testament are the man of lawlessness, the evil man, and in Revelation, the beast. Antichrist's character and his introduction to the world as a major player begins when he does something amazing concerning Israel. Israel's never felt safe enough to lower her guard. This individual will promise her safety and peace, and she will accept that. You go to Israel today, and you will see on street corners young men and women carrying um, uh, rifles, even in Jerusalem. They're on the street corners to offer safety. You can't get from one part of Jerusalem to another without going through checkpoints. Many people have attempted in various times to attack Israel, to attack the individuals in Israel, uh, whether it be knife point or bombs or guns or stones or whatever it is. Um, but Israel always has one response, and that is to attack quickly and hard. My brother, my big brother, eight years older than I am, uh, when I was growing up, he said to me, Mark, you can hit me as hard as you want. But know this, after you hit me, I'm going to hit you back twice as hard. I learned not to hit. And that's kind of Israel's response when she's attacked. Well, Antichrist comes on the scene and he promises Israel will never have to worry about her neighbors. He makes a covenant and negotiated contract saying they will never have to worry. And Israel believes this and believes the Antichrist, and enters into the bargain. He promises to bring peace to Israel. She believes that finally, there will be an end to conflict with her Arab neighbors. There will be hope for peace and prosperity. The man who brokered this arrangement will be hailed as a hero. He will be viewed as the greatest of statesmen, and he will have ushered in peace. This will seem like a dream come true, and then the nightmare begins. This man who negotiates peace will seem like a Messiah. And this is all part of the design of the devil. Remember, Antichrist means both against Christ and in place of Christ. This latter meaning comes into play when Antichrist takes his seat in the temple and proclaims himself to be God 
and says, worship me or die. By the way, seeking worship is not the only invitation going on. There are several ways that Satan tries to be like God. For example, we have the one true God, but Satan wants to be called God. God has his son, Christ. Satan has his son, Antichrist. The Holy Spirit directs us to Christ. The false prophet directs others to Antichrist. Christ rides a white horse. Antichrist rides a white horse. Revelation chapter 6. God seals his worshipers with a mark. Satan seals with his mark. 666. God resurrects Christ. Satan fakes Antichrist's resurrection. Now, there are different views on this, and we'll get to that in a moment. And finally, Christ will rule the world. Antichrist will attempt to rule the world, and actually will do so for about three and a half years. Pardon me? Not everyone in Israel is pro-Antichrist. There are two who are vocal in their opposition. They are the two unnamed witnesses in Revelation 11. You will remember that the tribulation has two halves. The first half is how long? And the second? Three and a half. Right. Very good. During the first half, these witnesses are a light for God. They will speak for him. They will say what he wants. And the world hates it. Some will try to kill them. Revelation 11 says that men will attempt to kill them. But instead, the two witnesses will speak the word of God. And fire will take their enemies' lives. They are a kind of Christian terminator. No one can kill these witnesses. They're in a witness protection program. <laughs> well, everybody hates them, and it gets worse. They have the power to cause rain to stop, like the prophet of old named Elijah. And they have the power to bring plagues on the land and on the people whose deeds are evil. This Sounds like Moses, who caused the ten plagues of Egypt. In fact, many writers believe God will raise up Moses and Elijah to be these men who witnessed for God. All we know for sure is they have the ability to perform miraculous deeds through the power of God, like these two individuals. For three and a half years, God protects these witnesses. Antichrist can't touch them. When their mission is complete, God allows the Antichrist, also known as the beast, to kill them. God is sovereign, which means he's in control. But he has accomplished what he planned, and he allows the witnesses to be killed. Well, the world rejoices. 
It is the only place during the tribulation where joy is spoken of. If they had received God's message from the witnesses, they would have been saddened. Instead, they are filled with joy and exchange presents to one another, a kind of pagan Christmas celebration of the death of these two. Antichrist will get a real charge out of killing them, and he will refuse them burial. They'll be left on display for days. And perhaps a prediction of the coming television and satellites will be uh, in place because it says the whole world will watch. Well, there they are, the dead bodies on display to be mocked by the world. But God will intervene. After three and a half days, the bodies of the two witnesses will be resurrected and translated into heaven in a cloud of glory. Imagine the scene. Long lines will be waiting to view the corpses. Perhaps the cameras will be focused on them at the very moment of their resurrection. People in Europe and America will be watching via satellite transmission. The calm, matter-of-fact announcer will suddenly become nearly hysterical as he sees the resurrection in process and realizes that millions of people are depending on him for an explanation. How will the interpreters of the news manage this one? Even the voice from heaven will be heard in millions of homes. But before the newspapers can report the story or the commentators write their analysis, there will be another great event for them to cover, an earthquake which will center in Jerusalem and which will destroy a tenth part of the city and kill 7,000 people. All this too... At this time, too, apparently, the 144,000 witnesses are engaged in sharing their faith. Perhaps at this time, they will be killed as well. Are these Jehovah Witnesses? You may have had two folks knock on your door from the local kingdom hall. They believe they are the 144,000. Often, they are women married and Gentile. But these in the book of Revelation, these 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, are men, virgin, both morally pure and spiritually pure, and not Gentiles, but Jews. These are the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 in all. Well, have you ever heard of a Jewish evangelist or seen one in action, I mean a Messianic Jew who really knows Jesus as his Messiah. They can be enthusiastic. I heard of one Jew who trusted Christ and started preaching on a box in a street corner in San Francisco many years ago. Someone took offense and popped him one right in the mouth. He collapsed on the pavement, wiping his bloody mouth. A passerby said, boy, you couldn't get me to do that for a million bucks. And the Jewish evangelist wiped his mouth again and said, yeah, me neither. And then he got back up on the box and started preaching some more about Jesus. <laughs> well, one converted Jew can be overwhelming. A dynamo 
Sort of like a New Testament Paul. Can you imagine two? How about 144,000 Jewish evangelists? Wow! (laughs) Perhaps they come to Christ just like Paul did by divine revelation. Saul, that's Paul's Jewish name, why are you persecuting me? One word from Jesus, and he dedicated his entire life to spreading the message. There is much going wrong during this period, that's true. But there's also going to be some powerful good things happening. I believe through these witnesses, both the the two in Jerusalem and 144,000 perhaps spreading around the globe, the message is going out and people are getting saved. Well, no wonder the Antichrist uh, unveils his true nature at mid-trib as he seeks to kill these evangelists. He can't stand the competition. Three and a half years into the tribulation, the real plan of Satan comes out. He still wants people to worship him. And he arranges this by directing worship to the Antichrist. Just as we worship the Father by worshiping the Son, so Satan enjoys the adulation of people worshiping his man, Antichrist, and ultimately Satan himself. Well, there's another competitor that the Antichrist wants to eliminate. Early in the tribulation, world religion is pictured with the unwholesome image of a prostitute. She is called Babylon. All Christians have been raptured, taken to heaven. By the way, I, um, I wish I'd written down the title. I just uh, was looking this week at the Antichrist and up on my Facebook feed popped uh, Jack Hibbs and he did a, a message on the Antichrist. Okay, but I found it very interesting. He said um, he started out in the pre-trib camp and he was there for a while, but as he studied, he felt like he needed to man up and he decided that the post-trib view was correct and we need to teach Christians that we're going through the tribulation and therefore we need to be prepared. Well, in this message, he said, I held that view for about three years. Guess where he is now? He's pre-trib all the way. The whole message, (laughs) one hour. And he said, I hardly ever teach about the Antichrist because we won't see him. I think that's good news. Now, by the way, does this mean that all Christians everywhere will be exempt from suffering and persecution and murder? No. All that's happening right now today in different parts of the world. Christians are not exempt. So we shouldn't think it could never happen to us. We need to be prepared for whatever comes. So Babylon, this prostitute, after we've been raptured, this prostitute dominates the world religion. She is said to ride the beast. What does that mean? Well, you know, a rider over a horse has control of the horse, right? Well, Antichrist rides the beast. He has control over the, uh, over the Antichrist, or she, I should say, the prostitute, the false system of worship that originated in Babylon. Think about it. 
Where did false religion originate? The city of Babylon. And this future religious system will be a false worship. Revelation 17, 16 says this. The beast and the ten horns you saw hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Notice it's called there a city. It is a city. Well, after many years of thinking about this, and you've got to be aware that there are many opinions about what this religious system is, what Babylon is. Some say the Roman Catholic Church. I don't believe that. Uh, some say this, some say that. After many years of study, I've finally come up to with a brilliant conclusion about this. Babylon means Babylon. <laughs> You know, it's wonderful when we just allow the text to speak, when we just take God's divine revelation at face value. This is the city. In fact, you could say the Bible is the tale of two cities. One is Jerusalem. That is the one that is talked about most. It is the name, that is, it is the city where God's name resides. God says he loves Jerusalem. Babylon is the other city. Of all the cities mentioned in the Bible, it's number two. It's mentioned more often than any other city except Jerusalem. But we take Scripture at face value, and it is Babylon, the city. It says it's a city, repeatedly. The Bible has been called, as I said, a tale of two cities. This latter-day event may beginning to get set up. Saddam Hussein, when he was in power there in Iraq, began to rebuild Babylon. It's very interesting. I, I've seen pictures of coin he had minted. And on one side, you have the greatest known king of Babylon, who would be Nebuchadnezzar. This great king. Flip it over, and you have the other great king of Babylon, Saddam Hussein. Or so he thought. Do you think he had... Visions of grandeur? <laughs> yeah, I think so. But he began to rebuild the city. And um, uh, during COVID, not that many people traveled to Babylon. They did before that. But now, I, I just read yesterday that thousands of Iraqis travel to the city of Babylon every year. You think about it, if it becomes the center for future false worship, why would it be called a prostitute? In the Old Testament, when you had false religions, they engaged in prostitution as part of their worship. It's just very interesting that each year, Babylon has an annual festival, which includes a dance by an ancient deity. Hmm. Well, let me try to give the big picture. First, during the first three and a half years, Antichrist, also known as the Beast, gains power over ten European nations. Kind of a United States of Europe. He conquers through diplomacy by making treaties. Then, a number of things happen 
at the midpoint of tribulation. The two witnesses are killed, as I've mentioned. Harlot Babylon is overthrown. Antichrist breaks the treaty with the Jews. Antichrist demands to be worshipped. Satan is cast out of heaven, Revelation 12. Intense persecution happens to the Jews, also in Revelation 12. Well, now, as we're entering into the second half, the second three and a half years, things go crazy. Or you might say things go globally. Revelation 13 points to three really big events. They are a one-world political ruler, a one-world spiritual ruler and religion, and a one-world economic system. Well, who do you think is the political ruler? Antichrist. Well, so who is the spiritual ruler? Satan, ultimately, but his man in charge is Antichrist. And the one world economic system, who is heading that up? Antichrist. So here you have a man who gains control of virtually all of the whole earth. He has religion directed towards himself because he goes into the temple at the middle, midpoint of the three and a half years and announces that he's God. And you have a system where no one can buy or sell. Let's, let's dig into these things one at a time. Let's look at the one world political ruler. Revelation 13, 1. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seems to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had been given authority. He had given his authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast is given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. The beast comes out of the sea. That's a symbol for non-Jewish people. The land was what the Jewish folks had been given, but they saw um, Grecian peoples come and set up along the coast um, camps and cities and ultimately came to dominate Israel. So they viewed Gentiles as coming from the sea. So I believe it's likely that the Antichrist is a, is a uh, Gentile. Well, the dragon, that is Satan, is the one who gives him power. Great miracles are done and explained as being from Satan himself. Then the fatal wound is the biggest miracle. A hitman appears. Someone will try to kill the Antichrist, the one that John calls the beast. He will succeed. At least the beast is wounded so severely he has to die, or so everyone thinks. But Satan raises him up. It appears Satan has brought his man back from the dead. 
Remember, Satan wants to be God and to do the things that God does. So he copies the resurrection. The beast is wounded, all right. He's wounded unto death. His miraculous recovery sparks more interest in him. He is the marvel of the world. And people worship Satan outright as a result of this resurrection. How long does this go on? 42 months, three and a half years. Scripture says that during this time, he will have authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Revelation 13, 7. Well, now let's look at the spiritual aspect. The very next verse speaks about a one-world spiritual ruler. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. Not only is he a political ruler over all the earth, he becomes the spiritual ruler as well. He receives worship due only to the one true God. Antichrist has his right-hand man, a sort of lieutenant. He's never named, but he is known as the false prophet. He acts as Antichrist's PR guy, his campaign manager. Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw, John says, another beast coming out of the earth. Well, if the sea represents Gentiles, what does the earth represent? The land of, of Judah. Apparently, this individual will be a Jew. And if he's a prophet speaking to Jewish people, that makes sense. He has two horns like a lamb. He'll appear peaceful, but he spoke like a dragon, his true character. He exercises all the authority over the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. What Old Testament prophet does that mimic? Elijah, remember? All right. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power uh, to give breath to the image of the beast, of the first beast, so it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Um, just a few thoughts on this. There's more than one view on this death and resurrection of the Antichrist. For many years, I believe, well, Satan obviously doesn't have the power to, um, to do miracles of this nature. Only God could raise Christ. Only God could raise individuals. So this must be staged. That was the view that I held. John Whitmer, a great godly Christian theologian from Grace Seminary, 
um, did a presentation that I got to listen to, and he felt that it was a genuine resurrection. The words for the death of this individual is the same as the word for the death of Christ. The word for resurrection of this individual is the same as applied to Christ. Maybe it is possible that God allowed Satan this one-time thing. And the purpose is accomplishing God's purposes, that all the people who had rejected Christ, blasphemed God, rejected him, hardened their hearts, and hard, 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 hard. God finally sends a delusion to make sure that they stay that way. God is patient for a long, long time. God is not wanting any to perish, but when people cross a certain line in the rebellion against God, there's no turning back. In addition to the seeming miracle of the beast, an image is set up in the temple, an image that seems alive. It speaks. You know, all the things that are happening with, uh, with computers these days, AI, artificial intelligence, you can't help but wonder if this is that. And some things we just don't know, but it is interesting. If anyone refuses to worship the beast, a.k.a. the Antichrist, he is killed. Finally, a one-world economic system. And again, immediately the next verse, we hear about this one-world economic system, beginning with the mark of the beast. Verse 16, he, referring to the false prophet, also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. In this economy, if you want to buy or sell, you must first have the mark. If someone wants to buy food, he has to have the mark. Well, much speculation has gone on into this, and even now we probably don't know the final form that this will take, or how it might be that this can identify the beast. Some thought, decades ago, some thought that the social security number was the mark of the beast. It obviously was not. But it may be getting you people used to being identified by a number. Some have associated the number with UPC codes on most merchandise. The code, the barcode on the back of packages. Many years ago, I, I heard Joe Martin say something in a conference, and he shocked me. He said that the number 666 is embedded into this UPC code. What? Really? We'll take a look. The number six in the UPC code is indicated by two identical narrow bars or lines. 
And so in this UPC code, which is typical of the ones you find in grocery stores, the very first thing you see is a six. Halfway through, what do you see? Two skinny lines, what number is that? A six. You get to the very end, what do you see again? Six. Six, six, six. Now, I don't think this is the mark of the beast, but it is fascinating. It is curious. Another guess has been a tattoo. Um, the mark could be placed on the hand or for the bold citizen right on the forehead. And now that tattoos are fashionable, we can actually conceive of this, can't we? We can think of this happening. I think the uh, key support for this particular part is uh, what Tommy Ice brought out. The Greek word for uh, a pawn seems to indicate that this mark is placed on the surface of the hand or the forehead. So it may be a tattoo. Well, as you know, probably the end concept now seems to be implanted microchips. Often these have our, I'm sorry, RFID technology, radio frequency identification. Well, a small computer chip about the size of a grain of rice can be placed just under the skin. And this is being done with pets, especially dogs, as a way of identification. You lose your dog, you take it to a vet, they have a reader, they can tell you information about this pet and get it back to its owner. Well, there's talk of using this technology on military personnel. We can easily say how it could be used to buy and sell. Just run your hand under the scanner and it automatically ducks, deducts the amount of your purchase, kind of like today's debit card. And in light of all the theft that goes on with credit, card, credit cards and credit card numbers, this might offer a protection or security for that. Well, when the Antichrist gets his hands on this kind of technology, things go crazy. Or you could say, things go globally. Some may ask, if someone takes the mark, can they still be saved? As a young Christian, I went to Mark Cameron, who was teaching us theology, and, and I asked that question to him. And in a very somber, not joyful, but a very somber expression, he said, with firmness. No. If a person comes to this point, whether they pledge their allegiance to Antichrist, they are not merely saying, I'll give me the mark so I can buy or sell. They are saying, I worship you as God. And at that point, they've crossed the line. Well, some have raised the question, could I take the mark without knowing it. You know, some sensitive soul might be afraid, well, what if I took the mark and I didn't mean to? That cannot happen. Why is that? It can't happen because this is an act of worship. This is saying, I worship Antichrist. I think he's God. Give me the mark. I want to be identified with my God. You can't take this mark accidentally you're making a full and final decision that Antichrist is your God. Well, one last question. 
is what does the number 666 mean? The Holy, let's see, the number for completion is seven. You see that over and over and over again in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation, many, many, many times. The Holy Spirit, God, is represented with the number seven earlier in Revelation. Antichrist, however, is less than completion, less than God. Antichrist is 666, or the number of man. Here's what John Walvoord says. He says, 666, he's a man, he's a man, he's a man. He's not God. And it is possible that at some point in the tribulation, this number may help identify who the Antichrist is. Well, it'll be evident to all, I think, at mid-trip. So maybe in the first three and a half years. Attempts in the past have resulted in guesses, all of them wrong. These include... Nero, the Roman emperor, the Pope, or Martin Luther, if you're Catholic, and Mussolini. More recent attempts to identify the Antichrist have come up with Henry Kissinger, Saddam Hussein, and Michael Gorbachev. And we might also add every president of the United States since George Bush has been labeled as the Antichrist. Obviously, all of them are wrong. Personally, I believe that no one will know the identity of the Antichrist until after we are raptured. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where I get this. It calls him the man of lawlessness. That's the Antichrist. Now look at verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, before I get into this, uh, just want to mention something. There's an increasing common view that the events of Revelation took place from about 66 A.D. through 70 A.D. And um, they, they view Nero as the Antichrist. But there's a problem with that. Scripture tells us that immediately after Christ destroys the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, he comes. So let me ask you, did Christ come in 70 A.D.? No. We're still waiting for him. Doesn't work. Many believe that the one who holds back this lawlessness is God, namely the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent and omnipotent. He can hold back. He is the only one with the power to do so. But how can he be taken out of the way? Don't miss this. 
he can be taken out of the way in the same way he came. Now, he's always been omnipresent. He always will be. But he came on the day of Pentecost when he came to indwell believers, you and me. And he will continue to indwell believers throughout the church age. But when the rapture occurs, believers are taken out. Now, what is our purpose for being here? We're to be salt and light. We're to be that cleansing effect. We're to be shedding light. We're to be preventing the putrefaction of our culture as much as we can. And the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us to affect our world. But when we're taken out, that restraint is removed. And then Antichrist will be, or Satan will be free to bring his man on the scene. And Antichrist at that point can be revealed. A worldwide economy is not far from realization. What affects the stock market in New York today affects Tokyo tomorrow. Economic events reverberate around the world. Well, so let's sum it up. The Antichrist will be in charge of a one-world economic system. He will be in charge of a one-world religion. And he will be the head of the government of the world. He will be Satan's right-hand man. Well, we've seen from inspired scriptures that a unified world order is predicted. It is to be a one-world political, spiritual, economic system. Many errors um, have happened by setting dates. Many errors happen by setting dates. People look foolish when they pretend like they know something that God has said, I don't want you to know. Christ said, no man will know the day nor the hour of his coming. And I think for us to think we're smart and can predict the date or get close to Every time people make an attempt to predict the date of Christ's coming or these events, everybody so far has gotten it wrong. So please, don't be tempted. You know, sometimes people get a big head and they think they know something. Let's be very careful. We don't know. God does, but he hasn't told us. There's one guy that wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come in 1988. It went out of print January 1st, 1989. We don't want to be like him. There are, however, indications that we may be getting closer to Christ's coming than a generation ago like a great play that requires scenery to be in place before the actors come on the stage, there are signs that the end-time events are coming closer. What are some reasons to believe that? Why well, believe God's plan for the end times could kick in at any time? I think the biggest reason is based on a piece of real estate in the Middle East, Israel. 
1948, Israel became a nation for the first time in 1900 years. In 70 AD, due to the large number of Jews who rejected Christ, especially all of the Jewish leadership, God sent punishment, brought the Romans in to take over Jerusalem, and the Jews, in large part, were kicked out. So most of the Jewish people have been out of their land for 1,900 years. The fact that they have not just fully been assimilated into different cultures and and beliefs and people groups is just amazing. I view that as God's sovereign plan for his setting up the final end times. God has maintained the identity of the Jewish people. And as I said, this is unprecedented. No other people group has ever done something like this. To be out of their land, to be speaking different tongues, different languages, and still maintain their identity. And then, to be brought back together. And then, to have their nation form in 1948. I see the sovereign hand of God in this. Not everybody sees it that way, but to me, that's an indication that God is sovereign and he's working out his plan. So we're getting closer to this seven-year period. Well, in spite of opposition from most countries and all of our neighbors, Israel is back. God may be gearing up to complete the final seven years. He predicted for Israel, as we saw last week, In the book of Daniel chapter 9, there is a final seven years yet to be completed. What are some evidences that the end time predictions might be in the works? So now we're going to begin to look at evidence for a one world political ruler, a one world government. Jesus Christ, who said he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one can come to the Father but by him, simply does not fit the globalist mold. And so for them to have a one-world government, they've got to get him out of everything. Any, Any support for him has to be removed. And we see this has not been a recent endeavor. It's been around for a while, judging from this document entitled the Declaration of Interdependence. Sound like the Declaration of Independence, right? Well, interesting, it was given in 1976. So on the 200th anniversary of our nation, the uh, United Nations World Council of Affairs gave this, and it reads in part, Two centuries ago, our forefathers brought forth a new nation. Now, we must join with others to bring forth a new world order. To establish a new world order, it is essential that mankind free itself from the limitations of national prejudice. We must affirm the economy of all nations is a seamless web and that no nation can any longer effectively maintain its processes for production and monetary systems 
without recognizing the necessity of collaboration, a collaborative regulation by international authorities. We call upon all nations to strengthen the United Nations and other institutes of world order. In other words, it's a call for a one world society. This society must be free of national prejudice. In other words, we can no longer be Americans or Britons or French or Swedish. We've got to disband that old provincial way of thinking. Instead, we've got to have a one world government supported with a one world economy. So Antichrist will head this up, but how will he ascend to power? Some think it will be through the United Nations. This world governing body could be the stepping stone for this world dictator uh, to consolidate his power. Another guess is that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, might be used in some way to grasp power. I'm not saying that these will be used by Antichrist, only that it's a possibility. Well, how about evidence for a one-world religious system? Is there any evidence for a one-world spiritual ruler? By this I mean other than Jesus Christ. For worship to be directed away from God, all references of Jesus Christ and to biblical Christianity have to be erased. Is there evidence of this? Yes. What common denominator do these events have? Everywhere we look, friends, we see Christian influence declining. A judge on the East Coast pursued having, is pursued for having the Ten Commandments hanging on a wall. We can no longer have the Ten Commandments. The model for most of our law is the Old Testament. But we can no longer have the Ten Commandments hanging on the institutes of courts in our land. Uh, children in Mississippi are forbidden to pray. The judge appoints people uh, as a squad to go into schools to make sure that prayer is stamped out. For many centuries, we have marked our calendars with the year followed by A.D., meaning Anno Domini, or Latin for in the year of our Lord. But this abbreviation is no longer used. Instead, we have put C.E. for Common Era. And um, so we have tried to stamp out any reference to Christ. But still, you think about it, it still is based on Christ, isn't it? Because it goes back to the birth of Christ. Anything forward is, is, is um, you know, AD or, or CE, anything behind that is marked a different way. So Christ is still the mark but we're not allowed to refer to him with this system. It does seem like that they will try to have a one-world religion. And I believe a lot of it will be talked about by creating peace 
it will sound good, just as the Antichrist will appeal to Israel and say, I will give you peace. He'll do so with the whole world. And maybe for a period of time, he's able to pull that off, making everybody want him in power. But as I said, at mid-trib, his true colors are revealed, and he comes out as a horrible beast. And from that point on, from mid-trib on, he is referred to in the book of Revelation as the beast. How about a world, a move to a one-world spiritual system? A one-world spiritual system is impacting our nation's Sunday schools in some churches. Barrett Koss recounts a woman's discovery upon examining her son's Sunday school book. Explaining uh, a poster in the class, the manual said, the logo for Unit 1 is a circle symbolizing God and the interconnection of the whole creation. The center that keeps the circle together may be called creator of great spirit, or G-O-D, small g. The circle in our logo is made with braided sweetgrass, which is used by many people of the First Nations, Indians, to purify or cleanse the body and soul. Did it imply the cleansing came through the Native American sweetgrass ritual and not through Jesus Christ? The mother wondered, what about faith in Christ? She turned the page and she found her answer in an apology to the Indians. It read in part, in our zeal, our Christian zeal, to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. We were closed to the value of your spirituality. We tried to make you be like us, and in so doing, we helped to destroy the vision that made you what you were. As a result, you and we are poorer, and the image of the Creator in us is twisted blurred. We ask you to forgive us. Friends, this is politically correct Sunday school curriculum. That was the mother's response. It's wrong to be a missionary, but right to blend Christianity with Native American spirituality. Our children learn that they are guilty simply because they are part of a culture that taught others to trust Jesus Christ. Now, I will say this. When we go into another culture and we take the gospel, we are not dragging our Western culture with us. I like the, uh, the missionary that went into China and he dyed his blonde hair black because he wanted to be identified with the people he was trying to reach. He didn't try to make them English. He became like them so he could reach them. But we can't heap abuse on missionaries that sought to share the gospel of Christ because they went into another religion and another culture and there were differences. No, we, we are rightly glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ 
And we are sharing the gospel of Christ, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, offering eternal life to anyone who would believe. And we can't compromise that message. But that message will not be acceptable to a future one world system. And proclaiming peace, I think they will reject the Prince of Peace. One Old Testament verse that fits situations like this is found in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to them who call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. You may remember the Reimagining Conference of 1993. Over 2,000 women from mainline churches in 49 states and 27 countries gathered together in Minneapolis to reimagine God, themselves, their sexuality, and the world. Funded in part by mainline denominations, the four-day gathering sent shockwaves through the church. I was sitting in my dentist chair, and my dentist brought this up. He was a member of a mainline church at that time, and they sent women to this um, event in, in Minneapolis, and they came back, and it was an eye-opener for him. Like many neo-pagan celebrations, the conference began by creating a sacred space. Here they called it making holy space. Picture Christians, you know, different denominations of Christianity gathered together, making holy space. Talking circles around the tables. The assembly imagined the faces of their God. What does your God look like, taste like? sound like. They asked each other while the sounds of the water drum throbbed in the air. To help each woman visualize her own goddess, Christians, leaders suggested a medley of exotic images. Sophia might be her Christian name, but the options were boundless. Mystery, lover, earth mother, spirit woman, she who is, cosmic maxim, transforming laughter, womb of creation, yin yang, unknown God. Here's what one Christian theologian had to say. The three goddesses I want to share with you are Kali, from the Hindu faith, Kwan In, Buddhist, and Inna from the Philippines. My new trinity, says Kyung Hyung Young, a Korean theologian educated in America at Union Theological Seminary. She added, Buddha died in his 80s, and Jesus died when he was 33. Maybe Jesus should be called too young to understand. This is calling wrong, right, and right, 
wrong. Well, how about the one world economic system? We've seen that there is movement in this spiritual realm. Uh, how about the economic realm? There is evidence for a one world religious system. No, there is. In order for there to be a one world economic system, you must have some type of one world currency. However, if you tried to accomplish this all at once, get there are roughly 200 nations in the world, try to get everyone on board to give up their currency and to join uh, a foreign currency, that's just not going to happen. So what you need to do is have geographic areas that have some commonality or some common purpose joined together. And that happened. Of course, the euro did that back uh, about 20 years ago. Um, it was coming into fashion. And uh, as more and more com countries were adopting the euro, they, they could have an economic powerhouse in Europe that could rival that of the United States. We have our currency, and that in the past has been a very powerful thing, although that's beginning to crack. Some nations are choosing to go with the Chinese currency instead of American currency for the first time. So we're seeing movement in this area. By the way, I had a friend of mine named David who oversaw the economic uh, area of development in a major international corporation. And he, he talked about, it was very difficult for him and his job before 2000 um, because you had to have everything in the euro, but you also had to keep it in the country's own monetary uh, cash. So you had different labelings, and it was a headache to exchange all these. But then with the coming of the euro, you could disband with all the other currencies and just go with that. Well, if each different geographic area does that in the world, and then when Antichrist comes forth, he doesn't have to assemble 200 different currency systems. In fact, Many nations will have already given up their own currency and used another form. And so they're used to this idea. So it'll be a natural transition to go to a one-world currency. Well, let's, re let's review what we've seen so far as we wrap up. I believe the next event on the horizon is the rapture. I don't see anything in the text that says that there's something that has to happen first. If that were the case, if the New Testament were saying something happened to happen before the rapture took place, then it couldn't be what we call imminent. And since the very early uh, part of Christianity, first century, people have called the rapture imminent. They've referred to it as being able to happen at any time. Now, I know a lot of people believe in different forms. Post-trib is a very common one. But I hold to the pre-trib rapture, so that's what I presented here. We don't know how long this will last before that comes. We never set dates. But then something will happen. There will be a signing of a treaty with the Antichrist and Israel. And that's what begins the tribulation period. By the way, a lot of people think that the rapture begins the tribulation period. That's not stated in Scripture. And in fact, I think there could be a reason for a period of time, perhaps years, between the rapture and the signing of this treaty to accomplish certain things in prophecy. But he will offer Israel peace and give them security. I think at that point, 
as part of the deal, he's probably offering them an opportunity to rebuild the temple, the Jewish temple, on the Temple Mount site in Jerusalem. And they will do that. And we see it by mid-trib, it's in place, and Antichrist comes in. So it has to be built before mid-trib. Well, uh, at mid-trib, he comes into the temple and he says, Worship me or die. I'm God. He reveals his true colors. What he's always wanted is to be worshipped. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped. And he gets that by setting up his guy, Antichrist. And he will demand worship. And the false prophet will give him support and insist that people take the mark of the beast on their hands as an act of worship of Antichrist. Um, the Jewish people will flee, and most of those in Jerusalem will be killed. In fact, throughout the entire nation, the Old Testament depicts a time when two-thirds of the people will be killed. Well, finally, we get to the very end. Chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes back. Chapter 19 of Revelation. And he slays his enemies, and he sets up his kingdom. So that's what we have to look forward to. It's a grand plan. Final review for the last two weeks. We've seen that Daniel 9 predicts 77s for Israel. 77s of years or 490 years. 69 sevens, that would be 483 years, brought us to the cross. And it says very explicitly, the anointed one, our Messiah, will be cut off. He will be killed. So we know the 483 year mark. But as you read the text in Daniel, there's verbiage in there. There's a break in there. And I believe there's a time break in there. And we don't know when that final seven years will will take place, but that final seven years remains. So the trib will have two halves, and the coming world ruler, as I stated, will be Roman. He is the prince of the nation uh, described in Daniel chapter 9, which is Rome. The Antichrist will be the last world dictator. He will make a covenant with Israel for seven years, and when he does that, that final seven years kicks in. The Antichrist leads a worldwide political, spiritual, and economic system. And Satan imitates God. And there's a false trinity there. Satan corresponds to the Father. Antichrist corresponds, to the son, corresponds with the Son of God. And the false prophet who causes the Antichrist to be worshipped. He's like the Holy Spirit who causes us to worship Jesus Christ. Well, it's obvious that Antichrist will reject God and will seek to establish worship of Satan at the end of times. However, there will be a payback. Come back next section, next session for the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Here's the application. When I was a brand new Christian, I doubted the existence of Satan. I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. We'd always had this picture of this comical figure in a red suit and pointed ears and um, pitchfork and, and a tail. It was just a joke. Who could believe in that? You expect us to believe something like that? That was my thinking as a brand new Christian at age 19. 
but something happened. <laughs> I read scripture, and scripture reveals to us that God has this ultimate archenemy who despises God, and he focuses on you. Why? Because you're God's. You belong to God. And so he hates you because he hates God. So I have come to believe that there is an Antichrist. I'm sorry, there is a Satan, the existence of Satan. And someday he will have his man in place, the Antichrist. But it's all being set up for God to bring in the ultimate kingdom of Christ. You see, friends, I'm a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. Let's pray. Father God, we look forward to the kingdom of Christ. Father, Christ was wanting to do your will. He came, he died to pay for all of our sins in obedience to you. Father, he also did it out of love for us. It was his choice to do so. And I thank you for that, that because he did that, we can have a relationship with you. We give you praise and thanks, Father. We rejoice to know that ultimately you win and we're on your team. Thank you, Father, for that good news.